Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, a podcast dedicated to speaking with authors from an array of academic fields about their most recently published works. My name is Matthew Long, and I am one of your hosts in the Islamic Studies section of the New Books Network. Today, we're going to be speaking with Professor John Turner about his book, Inquisition in Early Islam. Scholars of Islam and historians have frequently pointed to the mitnah, translated as trial or test, as a crossroad in the landscape of Islamic history. Professor John Turner of Colby College is among those who challenged the long-held assumption that the Mithna was, uniquely pivot- was a uniquely pivotal event in his work, Inquisition in Early Islam, the Competition for Political and Religious Authority in the Abbasid Empire. In his book, Turner explores issues of heresy, orthodoxy, and caliphal authority. He investigates how Muslim doxographers defined orthodoxy not by what orthodoxy is, but rather what orthodoxy is not. Defining the limits of orthodoxy allowed scholars and caliphs to become the arbiters of what is orthodoxy. This discussion sets the stage for his examination of heresy trials that took place under both the Umayyad and Abbas caliphs. Of particular importance is the trial of Ahmed ibn Hanbal, whose name is carried on by the Hanbali Madhab. Turner demonstrates that these trials were instituted by caliphs to consolidate their power and authority as the commander of the faithful by establishing and enforcing religious normativity. Thus, heresy trials, like the Mithna, should not be understood as exceptional events, but one of the methods caliphs employed to solidify control of the Muslim polity. Professor Turner provides his readers with a clear and well-argued revision of the understanding of the Mithna in the history of Islam. All scholars of Islam will benefit from this work, but those with interests related to Islamic doxographies or political authority will thoroughly enjoy his book. Hello, this is Matthew Long with the Islamic Studies section of the New Books Network. Today we're speaking with Professor John Turner about his recent work, Inquisition in Early Islam. How are you doing today, Professor Turner? I'm doing quite well. Thank you very much. And you? I'm doing very well also. So the most recent work, Inquisition in Early Islam, explores something particular in Islamic history, the Mithna, but doing it in a very interesting way to actually discuss it not as an isolated event, but rather as a broader conversation of religious and political power struggles that occurred in history. Uh, but before we start talking about that, um, if you could, Professor Turner, could you go ahead and give us a little bit of your biography? Well, it's uh, not terribly interesting, I think, but um, here goes. Uh, I really became interested in Islam and Islamic studies and the Middle East uh, when I was an undergraduate student at Furman University and uh, the Gulf War in 1990-1991 um, really triggered my interest in Iraq in particular. The, um, when Saddam invaded Kuwait, it raised a lot of questions, of course, and I was curious and naive and an undergraduate. And so I started asking questions and pursuing. And um, interestingly enough, I found that every question 
I found an answer that was somewhat unsatisfying that led me to deeper questions and uh, followed a steady trajectory back in time. And I kept kept going back in time until I hit the Abbasids and decided that the Abbasids were pretty cool and uh, very interesting. And I fell in love with uh, the stories, uh, Atabari, and figuring out what was being said and why. So uh, there's this strange trajectory that starts with current events, well, current when I was an undergraduate uh, and still unfortunately current, um, that dragged me directly back to the Abbasids and questions of power and authority and um, the nature of religion in people's lives and the expression of religious practice, religious identity and difference and how that manifests in um, grouping and how people are included or excluded from groups, which uh, naturally or unnaturally uh, read me to leading, reading articles. And I was particularly struck by a couple by Michael Bonner and that um, led me to apply for graduate school at the University of Michigan, where I did my graduate work in Ann Arbor, and worked with Michael Bonner and Alexander Kanish and Catherine Babian, Rudy Lindner, and uh, a host of others. But um, they were my main cohort that I worked with, and they helped me see the material in different ways and took me on an intellectual journey that has kept me asking questions about the nature of groups and group formation, identity, religious identity, and professions of power and political authority. And all of those questions are tied up in the book in some way, and they continue to be seated in my in my work as I continue to think about these issues and write about them. And as I teach my classes, um, all of these things show up in my classes, much to some of my students' annoyance, but uh, to some they find it as interesting as I do. And um, all of that has led me pretty much to where I am today at Colby and um, the experience of teaching and researching and writing in a, a small liberal arts college environment where I get to work closely with students who were like me when I was, uh, who are like I was when I started and helping them find their path towards more satisfying questions, more satisfying answers. And, um, hopefully leading to better understandings of not just the Abbasids, but uh, the historical trajectory that has led us to where we are today. Uh, I view uh, history and historical intercourse as being a, a continuum in which we are definitely participants and knowing and understanding, knowing and understanding what has come before allows us to um, see what is happening now more clearly and through a lens of greater, um, more precise analysis that uh, perhaps will lead to differing, uh, different outcomes. And if I might ask, what was it about the Abbasids or was there a particular story that drew you to, you know, that time period? Uh, well, it's a... It, it's the stories around Harun al-Rashid and the Barmakids that actually really grabbed my interest the first uh, in the first iteration. And then I began to um, be interested in what came after because everyone talks about the um, Harun al-Rashid and the Barmakids as being the golden age of at least the Abbasids and so the height of the caliphate when things were all rosy and golden and happy. And... Um, 
And that led me to think, well, what came after that? And that led me to, to um, reading and thinking about Al-Ma'mun in particular, because so much has been written about him and so many people have focused on him that I became intrigued by his role and his position as commander of the faithful. And he is obviously a prominent figure in your work here. Um, so if you could, could you go ahead and sort of lead us into, you know, the introduction and the background of what you were writing about, which is known as the Mithna? Well, certainly. The, um, the first thing is to really think about the question I was trying to ask and answer. And the thing that motivated me to, to write the book was um, – the problem of authority in Islam, and it's not really a problem, but from a perspective of someone who has uh, studied European history, um, it's really quite striking that Islam doesn't have somebody who's in charge, whereas in medieval Europe, in roughly the same context, you see a struggle as the popes assert their authority to become the arbiter of dogma and orthodoxy in what ultimately becomes the the papacy, the sort of um, imperial papacy of uh, Innocent the Third, or um, you know, the the height of Catholic Church in medieval Europe, and you look to what's happening in the East in Baghdad, and you see that there isn't anything like that, or at least at, at first blush, there's nothing there like that. Why isn't there a person who's in charge of dogma, or at least somebody claiming to? And as I had worked through reading the material and the sources, I came to see that, in fact, there actually was something like that in the caliph, but there's a breakdown, and the caliph loses his position as being an arbiter of, of dogma and what is orthodoxy. In the course of the ninth century, it, at least that's how it's usually construed, that the caliph um, doesn't have the authority to uh, arbitrate any longer what is orthodoxy and unorthodoxy. And largely, the mihna is somehow in the mix in people's um, previous uh, interpretations and writings about it, that the Mihna takes on this looming uh, importance in the scholarly literature where, um, as I was doing my research and the initial stages of, stages of thinking about this book, um, it struck me as being overly important that there was something not quite right about the portrayals of the Mihna. And in the first chapter of the book, I, I go through breaking down um, previous understandings of what the Mehna was, that this inquisition that was started in 833 uh, by al-Ma'mun, the caliph, the Abbasid caliph, that this inquisition into whether one believed in the createdness or the uncreatedness of the Qur'an and um, was, this inquisition was continued all the way up until al-Mutawakko ends it in 848 or 849, um, the uh, Hijri year is 234, so we're you know, guessing as to when he actually ended it. But that there's this 15-year period where you have officials brought before a court 
or brought before the caliph and they're asked a specific question and do you believe in, in the creativeness of the Quran uh, is the Quran created or is the un, is the Quran uncreated and basically phrases a yes or no question and it's a public performance of power and authority where the caliph or his uh, subordinates are asserting not just a um, a position on on theology, but they're asserting publicly um, their authority to give direction, and that those who come before them know what the right answer is. They they know what they're supposed to say, and when they give the answer, it's a a performance of defiance or a performance of obeisance in which they acknowledge yes the caliph can tell me what to say what to believe about this or not um the overwhelming majority of people when brought forth and questioned uh, agree they, they assent to the caliph's position that the, the quran is created and um they they um acknowledge the caliph's right, whether they actually believe that or not is actually irrelevant to the discussion in the sources and it's actually mostly irrelevant to, to um, most considerations uh, in, in terms of how this is going to be portrayed. It, it's much more about uh, whether or not someone behaves correctly. Now, most of the scholarly, scholarly literature about this focuses on ma'amun, and it focuses on his motivations, or it focuses on Ahmed ibn Hanbal, who is tried uh, under the Mehna by the Caliph al-Mu'tasim, al-Ma'mun's successor. And his trial is the most famous episode in the Mehna, and it is accounted to be the most important. Both of those things, concepts, raised red flags for me when I was doing my research. And that's one of the things that comes out in the introduction is to say, why the fixation on Ma'amun and why the fixation on Ibn Hanbal? Um, Al-Ma'amun initiates the Mithna in 833, but then he dies four months later. And so if you look at the balance of things, Al-Ma'amun is in charge of the Mithna for four months. 170-some-odd months is the rest of the Mithna under al-Mu'tasim, and then al-Wathik, the succeeding caliphs. The vast, overwhelming proportion of time, 15 years almost, is under the next two caliphs. Why the fixation on Ma'amun and his motivations? The more important question is not why does Ma'amun initiate the Mihna, although that is very important. The more important question would be why do uh, al-Mu'tasim and al-Wathik continue the Mihna, and then why does al-Mu'tawakil choose to end it? Those are, those are some of the main questions driving that part of um, my discussion in the succeeding and the subsequent chapters. And then the question of why is Ibn Hanbal held up to be so important? In this, and why is his trial held to be the the um, most uh, extreme example, most important example of the Mehna, and why is his experience in the Mehna uh, almost emblematic, in particular for the Hanbali school of legal thought? So in the introductory chapter, in the first chapter, I pose those questions, and I start to um, dissect other people's approaches and, and how they've thought about these issues or not thought about them or what theories have been posed as to why 
this has happened. And those are the main things that um, actually got me interested in the Mithna in particular. It's not just about the the nature of an inquisition or a trial. As the inquisitions go, this is not a terribly interesting one. If you look at inquisitions and say you compare it to the auto de fe in Western Europe, this is really low key. Everybody's brought forth to the, that works with the court, hadith transmitters, uh, judges, um, uh, official witnesses. They're all brought in. Their question, pretty much everybody says, yes, okay. And they agree to what the caliph has said. And almost everybody goes home. And there are very few cases of people actually being subjected to physical corporeal punishment, and very, very few people actually die. As inquisitions go, the body count is extraordinarily low. Four or five people for a 15-year inquisition, is, is that's not very much. Mm-hmm. And um, for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with uh, what was at stake, you spoke of the created and uncreated Quran. Could you uh, kind of explain that a little bit? Well, it's a difficult question uh, in the sense that uh, createdness of the Qur'an and uncreatedness of the Qur'an, is, it's a deliberately obscure question that was chosen specifically because there hadn't been much said about it beforehand, and most people actually haven't thought a whole lot about it since. The, the question it boils down to is, was the Qur'an created in time by God, in response to specific events, meaning that God created the Quran and then as uh, Muhammad was engaged in prophecy, the bits were being given out to him and God was doing the Quran as, as he went along, or was the Quran uncreated and existed with God from the beginning of time? Now, the question boils down to um, omniscience, uh, God knowing all that was, is, and will be. And for those who believe that the Qur'an was uncreated, that's a a paramount importance, that there was never a time when God didn't know the Qur'an, because God's omniscient. For him to have not known the Qur'an meant he didn't know something, which violates and creates paradox. For those who believed in the createdness of the Qur'an, well, there's several issues at work for, for them. The primary one being that uh, God specifically names people in the Quran for punishment and some for reward. And if this is something that has been predetermined since the beginning of time, then that's an unjust fate because it allows no space for human choice. The person has had no choice but is condemned to do evil or correct and then ends up in hell or paradise on the basis of something they had no control over. So it's a question of justice of God. And then also there's the question of attributes. Um, And this is fairly complicated philosophically, but it boils down to um, the question, the, the problem of the, the word was, the word was with God, the word was God, the, um, the notion of the word being pre-existent, um, eternal, co-eternal with God, and that God doesn't have any partners. And if there's something that's co-eternal with God, then the Quran takes on the status, much like Jesus, for the Christians, 
of being equivalent to, to God. So the Qur'an in a parallel status of reverence. And for those who are opposed to the createdness, that's a deeply troubling proposition for them. Al-Ma'mun falls into the camp of those who's troubled by this issue, and he uh, very much seems to be um, consumed by ideas about the Qur'an and his role as commander of the faithful, guiding the faithful, and he comes to the conclusion that um, the idea that the Qur'an was uncreated is abhorrent and that there, there has to be um, a, a Qur'an that uh, was revealed in time and that the, the Qur'an was created by God as opposed to existing um, in eternity with God. And al-Ma'mun moves to enforce the createdness doctrine in opposition to the uncreatedness doctrine. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of is a very good lead into your second chapter because if this is the position in which was endorsed, the position that was endorsed, then that kind of moves into positions that were not endorsed. Right. Well, the the second chapter is really uh, designed to think about and tease out and parse the the nature of um, authority and. and through the lens of, of defining heresy and heretics and why and how someone is defined as out of bounds and why and how someone defines orthodoxy. We often think of orthodoxy as a tree, it's a one trunk and then there are branches coming off of it. And actually that's not how it seems to operate. Mostly what we see are parallel um, orthodoxies that are in competition with each other and there's consolidation and over time several strands get to be larger conglomerations and but they're still in competition with each other and orthodoxy always asserts that it is that one the the trunk from which others are branching off that the people who are not in agreement with the, the orthodoxy as being defined, those people have branched off and gone astray from an orthodoxy that's been present since the beginning of, of the religion, of the faith, of the time, the message, whatever, that, um, that those people have gone off and gone astray. Now, one of the things that happens in the process of asserting that orthodoxy is How do you define yourself as orthodox yet not exclude too many people? How do you foster that conglomeration where people start to to join in and stay within the the big tent? And it actually does lend itself well to a big tent approach if you define orthodoxy not by defining specifically points of theology, at least initially, but by defining those who are out of bounds. And if you define those who are out of bounds, then you define – not just that they're heretics or, or unbelievers or, or what have you, you're also defining those around you and yourself as representatives of orthodoxy without really having to specify what you mean, without having to get into too much of granular detail. And that one of the functions of saying you're orthodox, one of the things that you have to do is you have to you have to actually show and prove that, and one of the ways you do that is by declaring others not orthodox, or at least that's part of it. And for someone like the caliph, who is 
in the sources almost invariably in at least in the early period referred to at least by himself and those close to him as commander of the faithful the commander of the faithful his role and his identity is intricately tied up with the idea of being representative of the ummah the community of believers but also the community of believers on the path the correct path the straight path the true path the path uh, that will lead directly to paradise and so it is incumbent on the caliph to assert that he is in fact commander of the faithful that he is in fact the orthodox leader of the community and he is in the position of having to do that fairly regularly he's also in the position of being able to use coercive force but it's not necessarily a coercive mechanism you can shape the ideas of orthodoxy um in subtle ways through behavior but you can also shape it through um writing things like doxography and i use the term doxography for a specific reason in that we call it heresiography that uh, asserts that the those being described as heretics are actually heretics i use the term doxography because it um asserts a more neutral position for the material and the person who's writing the material um that that person is making a claim to be orthodoxy by describing others as being outside the bounds of orthodoxy and that description for someone um like the caliph or someone who is trying to assert their the orthodoxy of their school of legal or theological thought um is a necessity for them that they have to assert their own orthodoxy and they have to do it in fairly um expected ways that uh the standard audience would be able to recognize that there are ways of declaring your orthodoxy um that are coherent and make sense and that the the language being used the code that's being deployed the symbolism that's um being uh laid out that all of those things follow patterns of, that are recognizable for the audience and the audience will see them and understand them and know and recognize what all of that means and so you see the caliph you also see the people writing doxographies deploying similar symbols and similar ideas in similar ways to make claims for the caliph he's making the claim that he's commander of the faithful for the doxographers they're claiming that they they not only they but their school of thought to which they belong to are orthodox and that they feel compelled to do that as a as a way of legitimizing their position of their role they they have to legitimate their position as orthodox um one of the things for the caliphs the commander and the faithful in, in particular is that there's no routinized succession under the abbasids or the umayyads there's no routinized succession at least in this period where you have a clear sense of who's next as caliph it's not as though um you have the oldest son is going to be the next ruler no matter what and then the next son after that 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 understanding doesn't exist and so every new caliph upon ascension to the throne has to assert 
that he is in fact legitimately and rightfully the commander of the faithful. And um, in the school, with the schools of legal thought and with the schools of theological thought, they have to assert their position as orthodoxy in a field of competition, that they're competing with other people saying exactly the same thing, and they all have to assert in opposition to each other their, their, their right to be a legitimate interlocutor in terms of law or theology. Um, the legal schools of thought have to assert that they're orthodox legal schools of thought and that they're not innovating, as do the theological schools of thought. We tend not to think about that in Islamic studies very much, but the Asherites very clearly asserting that they're legitimate and that they're not heretics, that they're not innovating illegitimately. So to a certain extent, saying what or who one is by saying who one is not. Right. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Okay. And so, and also interesting, um, you talked about the lack of succession and that we are going to get to that, but that's a, a major theme here later um, is because there is not the, the sort of system of succession in place, or at least not as formalized perhaps in other circumstances uh, historically, that's the need for having to compete. These schools uh, must compete with one another because there's the potential for that their line of thought to become adopted as the perhaps mainstream line of thought. Well, it's not just that they they could be adopted as a mainstream of thought. They they will want to do that, but um, after the after it's clear that there's going to be no one person in charge of dogma, they're competing to um, basically keep within the, the bounds of orthodoxy and they're competing over who can be orthodox. It's not just about that, though. It's also not being excluded. The, the Hashwiya is a great example that um, uh, these are people who declared that Ishtihad was completely out of bounds and one could not do it and it was wrong and it was wrong. And um, they get left behind because ultimately everybody else decides that, yeah, you know, you, you have to use Ishtihad in terms of uh, developing legal ideas or responding to legal questions. And so the Hashwi are swept aside by that and they become not orthodox by virtue of holding to the position and their inability to make the case that they, they still, even though they differed on this, they're unable to make the case that, that, that that's not enough to exclude them, um, that, that they lose out. And in losing out, they also lose membership and they die out. This, is, this happens to a number of legal schools in that they, they can't quite cross the threshold of full inclusion because they don't make a strong enough argument for themselves to be full participants. Whereas you see the Hanbali and the Hanafi and the Maliki and the Shafi'i, they all do make that compelling argument, at least within the Sunni realm, that they're full participants in the conversation. Wonderful. Um, so then as we start to move forward, uh, before really getting to, you know, the, the evidence that you present, um, you do kind of show us something, very specific examples of, as you say, doxographers. Mm -hmm. 
Um, can you start to elaborate upon that? Well, in um, in the third chapter, uh, I I spend a lot of time um, talking about the Asherite doxographers, and you have Al Ashari, you have Baghdadi, you have Shahistani, you have these. Um, monumental doxographies that um, end up uh, you people talk about them a lot uh, at least in my circles they do and uh, but not at cocktail parties um, but you you see these as being sort of the iconic heresiography doxographies that the, these are are the the big ones and I kept thinking to myself when I was looking at this material why are the Asherites who are usually held to be the dominant school of theological thought, why are the Asherites so adamant or so involved, particularly Al-Ashari himself, in defining who doesn't believe? And I went through the material looking at it and found patterns and discovered that, in fact, they are asserting that they're the middle, that they're, they're not the traditionist, like the Hanbali, although they have roots and they share lots with them, but they're not the the Kalam, the Mutakalimun. They're not the ones who engage in dialectical theology either, that they're in between. And by asserting a central position, a centrist position, they expose themselves to attack from both sides, the extremes. And so they felt, or at least it appears that they felt, a need to assert their orthodoxy more strongly. And so they spend a lot of time and energy, at least these particular, these three authors, a lot of time and energy um, deploying the strategies uh, that one expects to find. You, you declare the person's guilty by association. You list their, um, their faults. You list what makes them bad. You subtly or not so subtly declare them to be unbelievers, although there's a, a reticence to outright call people who profess to be Muslims to be unbelievers, but there's a, a sense of strat- deploying um, clearly defined strategies to draw the boundaries of orthodoxy that situate the Ashari at the dead center, that everybody radiates out from them. There are degrees of separation. Um, the closer you are to the Ashari, according to these uh, doxographies, or at least how they draw their map, if you map the material out, um, as you get further away from them, the more, the closer you get to being out of bounds. And what was really interesting to me in, in sketching that and looking at those strategies is that when you read the letters that Al-Ma'mun wrote to start the Mehna, there's a famous series of letters in, uh, that Atabri uh, includes where you have a, a very explicit argument made by Al-Ma'mun for the Mehna for the Inquisition, but for also the the creativeness, doctrine. And in that, you see similar strategies. In fact, most of the strategies deployed in the doxographies, you'll also see appearing in these letters where he talks about the subjects of the inquiry, um, initially making the argument for his right to... um, to engage in the questioning about the, uh, the the creativeness of the Quran. But even then, once he starts to face some resistance, you see him um, deploying strategies of uh, guilt by association, typical things that one finds in doxographies. And there's a nice point of comparison between the two in that you see them um, both exhibiting behaviors of asserting vehemently 
the, they're the center of orthodoxy. Um, for Mahmoud, it's much more obvious. Uh, when someone says 52 times or 50 plus times in 15 pages that they're commander of the faithful, the repetition, well, A, it's striking and gets old, but it also is clearly highlighting that, well, he's trying to tell you something. He's trying to assert that he's commander of the faithful and all of this other stuff. Well, that's part and parcel of him claiming to be commander of the faithful. And so then how does, uh, I was going to say, how does that then um, impact, you know, what then, well, what you subsequently begin to discuss, and that's the larger uh, heresy trials? Well, using that as a, as a baseline, as a, as a platform, I, I, moved in, I move into discussing um, that what Moon was doing in the Mehna was not all that unusual. And that's one of the underlying premises for all of, all of this material is that um, Ma'amun is not an aberration. Usually people write, have written about Ma'amun and his motivation saying that what he has done is um, heretical, uh, out of bounds, that he's arrogated to himself authority that he does not have, that he is um, somehow... Uh, because he's smartest guy in the room, has decided that he's the imam and that he has um, basically uh, decided to do something caliphs hadn't done before. And one of the things about a cert, uh, of drawing the um, comparison between the Ashari doxography and the letters of Ma'amun is to show that there's similar strategies in play here, that orthodoxy was not a set thing, that there were conversations and arguments and disagreement about dogma, about theology, about belief and practice that hadn't been settled, um, and that the ulama weren't a collective at least not yet, and they still aren't, that, the, that there wasn't one, the caliph versus the ulama. And so, um, and, and that al-Ma'mun actually isn't doing anything out, out of the ordinary. He's not doing anything extraordinary. So in, in the fifth chapter, uh, I start talking about some heresy trials under the Umayyads, under the Umayyad caliphate, um, in really as a way of, of highlighting that as we peel through the layers of the information in our sources, we can see responses by the authors of that narrative to specific questions to address problems or complications or to solve issues. As they tell the story, as they write the narrative, as we peel back the layers, we can see more clearly the iterations of the stories, but we can also see the responses to concerns. And one of the things that becomes abundantly clear when um, studying the trials of uh, uh, Al-Harith ibn Sa'id um, al-Kadab and Al-Khaidan al-Damashqi, the, the the, one of the things that's abundantly clear is that the caliph is naturally at the center, that everybody's responding to him, that he's leading the charge, that he is questioning these two individuals on the basis of their doctrine, on the basis of their beliefs, and he is going to punish them 
for being wrong, according to the caliph. Now, the interesting thing about those two trials is they take place in a period of stress. And it's one of the reasons I chose them as examples, because Al-Hadith is tried by the Caliph Abdul Malik. And he's put on trial shortly after he's fully reasserted control or asserted control over the Caliphate. Now, there's this idea that the Umayyads start with uh, Muawiyah and they go all the way down to the Abbasid Revolution and that the Umayyad dynasty is in charge. Um, but that's not actually the case. After Muawiyah dies, there's a major disruption in the Umayyad line in that they lose control, that they have control partially over Damascus and nothing else. Really, basically, Ibn al-Zubayr is in the Hejaz. He is the caliph for all intents and purposes, and that everybody else is responding to that seat of power. Abdul Malik in 685, he's usually, that's usually the beginning point for his reign, isn't caliph in 685. He's head of the Umayyad family. And it's up to him to spend the next seven years to reassert control over not just the Umayyad family, but the empire. And he will do so by the early 690s. But he's still faced with the problem of, yes, he's won in war, but he hasn't fully asserted his role as commander of the faithful. So we see Abdul Malik doing lots of very interesting things, like uh, building the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is this great symbol. It's a symbol of a change and a shift in, um, in Islam, and as one of the oldest buildings that we have, uh, the inscriptions are uh, tremendously, uh, yield lots of insight for us. But he also, in addition to the Dome of the Rock, he shifts coinage to where it goes from being uh, having images on it to being epigraphic, that there's just information written on it, that there are major shifts in how the caliphate does its business. And as part of that, you see Abdul Malik going after heretics, Al-Harith being the most easily identified. And it is after he, uh, Abdul Malik has reasserted control over Iraq that he goes after Al-Harith, that there's an assertion of authority as commander of the faithful embedded in that trial that becomes apparent. And as we read through the narratives, we see that clearly. Now, Ghailan is interesting because... Um, he's tried by Hisham, who is son of Abdul Malik, but he comes to rule uh, about uh, 20 years later, after um, Abdul Malik dies. Um, he comes to power, and there have been a series of caliphs in between and lots of um, uproar, or at least the last seven to nine years before Hisham comes to the throne. The empire is in turmoil because there's fairly rapid turnover at the center in Damascus, and Hisham asserts forcefully that he's in charge. And as part of asserting forcefully that he's in charge, he goes after Khalan of Damashki, puts him on trial, and executes him as a heretic. And reading through the narratives, it's abundantly clear that there are patterns of behavior here that lead us to certain conclusions about the role of the caliph and also about how you talk about um, the caliph and how you talk about um, heretics. You also come to see that there are 
historiographical ways of um, shifting the data points so that you can um, raise somebody's stature up and lower somebody else's, that you see, uh, particularly in the trial uh, narratives around Khalana Dimashki, an attempt to diminish Hisham and his role and raise up Omar II's predecessor, the preceding caliph, to diminish Hisham and raise up the preceding caliph in an effort to take away from the legitimacy of Hisham by the later authors as they're shaping the, histori- the historical narrative, um, as they're mm, not manipulating the information, but changing how the reader sees and understands and absorbs the information um, in the effort to um, change the understanding of the ultimate conclusion, which will be that Hisham is bad and that um, ultimately later on the Abbasids were much better. That's the longer-term conclusion from that. But it's interesting to see that historiographic layering because that allows us to see later on when we talk about the Mihna trials why certain things are included, the way they're included, and the purpose behind their inclusion, which is very important for the ultimate conclusions at the end of the book. And um, when we talk about you know these trials of Al-Harith, and um, did these that did these trials actually occur after the? Uh, I mean, had the sort of military um, turmoil been put down, and then this was something that happened following that, or did they these happen to happen simultaneously? Um, for Abdul Malik, the the trial um, for him is after things were starting to settle down. You, you have this actually fairly close to the end of his reign. Um, we're talking 698 or 699, and he'll die in 705. He is consolidating control, has consolidated control uh, politically and militarily, and he's asserting um, his religious credentials as part of that and legitimating his authority to be in charge. And so you see these um, trials occurring in crisis points, but they're they're not just uh, military or political turmoil. It's also um, that the Hisham and Abdul Malik are needing to assert that they had the right to do what they did, that they had the right to say Ibn al-Zubair was illegitimate. He was not really caliph. Abdul Malik has to assert that or else he is not legitimately caliph. Hisham is in the position of having to assert his credentials for being on the throne, but also why the Umayyads uh, should be in charge because of the turmoil that had come before them, before him, and that he is restoring order. It's one of the early in his reign, one of the beginning of his reign for Hisham. It's the shot across the bow, in essence, saying, um, I'm in charge here. And so for Hisham, it's a part and parcel of the conflict, as it is for Abdul Malik, that, that these are assertions within a, a continuity of events. It's, you, we would be hard-pressed to say things had completely evened out, and then they started going after heretics. It's This was part of evening things out. So really, when those things occur doesn't really figure in in terms of the, you know, it's not really relevant because it's all taken together in reality. 
Well, because it's part of the same um, strategy. It's, it's part mm-hmm. of the same, solving the same problem. That building the Dome of the Rock is an assertion of uh, Abdel Malik's role as commander of the faithful and clearly defining that um, your views about Jesus have to fall into these this bandwidth. And if you believe otherwise, then you're not a Muslim. And um, as does changing the coinage that he's asserting for a specific audience that this is what correct belief is that this is Muhammad is the messenger of God and, and those sorts of things on the coin that Abdul Malik is asserting all within the same time period, various strategies towards the same end saying clearly legitimately, he's the correct commander leading the faithful down the path towards, um, towards paradise that if you follow somebody else, then you're not part of the faithful and you're not part of the ummah. And if you rebel against him or you rise up against him, then you're exiting the community. And so it's part of a continuity, a, a, an amalgamation of strategies being deployed um, that are asserting that, that one larger identity for the social role of the commander of the faithful, that this is bolstering that identity and the fact that Abdul Malik is claiming that he's legitimately the holder of that title, of the mantle of the prophet. And so that's the fourth chapter really trying to, well, I think really demonstrating that there is some, you know, obviously these trials, you know, the mitha, you know, it is these sorts of things that happened previously. And then as you transition into the fifth chapter, that's where we really get to the focal point. Right, right. The, um, the fourth chapter is asserting and establishing that these are things that caliphs do. And if you peel back the layers of the historiography, you see that nobody really questioned that at the time, uh, that the, these things were being written down. The, the, the assumption was the caliph does these things. And there's an attempt to explain or deal with that. In the fifth chapter, I, I go into talking about the Mehna proper and talking about um, the two most famous trials that come out of the Mehna. One, the, of course, uh, Ahmed ibn Hanbal being tried by Al-Mu'tasim um, and the results of that. And then Ahmed ibn Nasr al-Khuzai, who's tried by Al-Wathik. The interesting thing about peeling through the historiographic layers of the narratives around those stories are that at the very earliest phase, when you're reading through the sources, there's some serious ambiguity about what happened to Ahmed ibn Hanbal when he was tried, and that there's a very clear attempt to explain away the ending or to make sense of the ending because the trial happens. Al-Mu'tasim brings ibn Hanbal in front of him for trial Ibn Hanbal is asked the question, there's a series of back and forth, back and forth, and then Ibn Hanbal is released. The ambiguity is, why is he released? In the uh, sources that are more supportive of the caliphal position, we'll call them, uh, we'll use that euphemism, more supportive of the caliph, they all say that um, Ibn Hanbal acquiesced. He said, yes, yes. The caliph is correct. The Quran is created after having been beaten, but that's not the reason he actually acquiesces. 
Now, the Handelian narratives are great pains to say that, no, in fact, he did not capitulate, that he was released because of popular pressure. He was released because the caliph was um, feeling guilty, that um, Ibn Hanbal was released because he was steadfast. In the historiographic layering, as we're peeling through this material, it becomes clear that Ibn Hanbal presented a bit of a problem for the later Hanbali, in that they have this profound collector of hadith, the author of the Musnad, this gigantic collection of hadith arranged by Isnad, that you have this paragon of Sunnic practice, in the sense that this is someone who devoted his life to living by the Sunnah, uh, according to the accounts about him, that he was obsessed with um, and compelled to do the right thing. And that he collected a massive amount of information, which is then later used as the basis for developing a school of legal thought later on. And at the core of that school of legal thought's um, identity is this figure Ahmed ibn Hanbal as a paragon of Sunni practice, but also orthodoxy, not just Sunni. This is a follower of the Sunnah, someone who's living the Sunnah, that for the Hanbali school of legal thought, the problem is, what do you do about this trial? And the trial presents difficulties on a number of levels. One, the ambiguity, which they ultimately will explain away. But also, what about the role of the caliph? And for the Hanbali, they need to distance the caliphate as an office from having engaged in heresy, but they also need to absolve their eponym of having been accused of heresy. So they have to blame somebody of being a heretic, and the way they'll go about doing that and shaping the narrative is by blaming Ma'mun which is, uh, and blaming him as an aberration, as an outlier, which helps explain how and why um, we and modern scholarship have come to see Al-Ma'mun as doing something aberrant, as having gone out of bounds, and that he's to blame for the Mehna. It's largely derived from the Handlis having to resolve these two issues. Another issue that comes up for them is... Ahmed ibn Nasr al-Khuzai, the person who's tried by al-Wathiq. And that's the second trial that I go into. This is um, really quite stark in that Ahmed ibn Hanbal did not rebel. He counseled against rebellion. He is beaten in the trial and survives. He goes on to have a much, a long career um, continuing after his trial and without being hassled too much other than being invited to the caliph's court, you know, which he finds to be a tr- tremendous hassle. But Ahmed ibn Nasr al-Khuzai will raise a revolt in 846, in 231. He'll raise a revolt a- against uh, the Mehna, against the caliph in Baghdad. He will um, actively rebel and he'll be brought forth for trial under the Mehna in Samara by Awathik, who will try him himself, and Awathik will execute him. 
not euphemistically, he will take a sword and he will start to uh, uh, execute him at the end of the trial. He'll begin the execution. Um, that Here's the stark contrast. You have somebody who is professing the same position as Ibn Hanbal, who dies as a martyr for the cause. And the Hanbali are in the position of having to explain why his martyrdom does not take precedence over Ibn Hanbal, and why Ibn Hanbal remains the paragon of Sunni steadfastness in spite of the fact that he was released under ambiguous circumstances, whereas uh, Ahmed ibn Nasr al-Khuzai, he dies for the cause. And so his, the narrative surrounding um, Ibn Nasr is shaped to make him subordinate to Ibn Hanbal, so that his narrative doesn't trump Ibn Hanbal's, and it raises the importance of Ibn Hanbal even higher. Because of this shaping and this concern and these issues, Ibn Hanbal's trial actually grows in importance and becomes the centerpiece for the Mehna, even though the Mehna continued long after his trial was over. And we have another uh, 10 years-ish uh, after Ibn Hanbal's trial is put on trial where the Mehna continues, um, so that the apex is actually going to be framed as very early in the time period, and you have to explain that. And both the narratives around Ibn uh, Hanbal and Ahmed ibn Nasr al-Khuzai, the narratives around that seek to explain that and make sense of those issues. And just to kind of explain, how was uh, al-Khuzai's uh, narrative made subordinate? Well, he's he's portrayed as being um, a clear follower of Ibn Hanbal, and, and by sort of intellectual genealogy, he's also portrayed as um, basically saying the same thing that he is um, he his uh, positions are derivative from Ibn Hanbal, that he is secondary in importance, and that he's, um, he was following the lead of Ibn Hanbal. And, and one gets the sense that if Ibn Hanbal had not taken the stand that he did, Ibn Nasr al would not have either. And so it's not, uh, it's framed as he's being, he's in a follower position, and that his activities are, um, subordinate to uh, Ibn Hanbal. The, the story, actually, the story around his revolt is really fascinating, and it's an example of how not to do a revolution. And how, how should we not start a revolution? <laughs> well, um, he relies on the wrong people, and he um, it's actually somewhat humorous if it hadn't, didn't have um, deadly consequences for him, but that uh, the revolt is started early by some overeager or drunk, depending on the source, um, followers of his who start calling people out for the revolt too early before anybody else is ready, and they're all round up in a, caught up in a dragnet, basically. All the usual suspects are gathered up, and um, pretty quickly the revolt is quashed. 
train was rolling without much steam. Right. Well, the tr- the train actually didn't have anything. <laughs> well, it yeah. had had nothing. Right. They just had the whistle. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, a lot of the things though that you just discussed about um, uh, Ahmed Ibn Hanbal are what you kind of elaborate upon also in the final chapter. Right. The the final chapter is. Um, Putting the the Mihna back into its correct context, uh, as I see it, redrawing our understanding and expectations of what the Mihna was and its importance, and um, pulling together the threads and, and saying, okay, here's where the Mihna takes place in the context of um, an environment in which the Caliph is doing what Caliphs do, normally asserting and legitimating his authority, that this is one of the ways that the caliph did that. The the question that I stated at the beginning that really puzzled me at the beginning that needed uh, answering is, why does al-Mu'tasim and al-Wathik, why do they continue the Mehna? Um, Al-Mu'tasim is the, a strong guy. He is a powerful leader with a faction that is... Um, disciplined and uh, ready to fight, and he is in charge, and he's clearly a decisive person. If he had decided that the Mithna should be stopped, he could have done it, and he would have done it unless he saw some utility in it. And the utility in continuing the Mithna is the thing that's most interesting to me is to see that Al-Mu'tasim and Al-Wathik are engaging in the Mehna not just because they're on autopilot, which is the usual way of thinking about it. It's part and parcel of deploying the identity of commander of the faithful and legitimating themselves to their public and to the court, uh, that they are the legitimate possessors of the mantle of the prophet and that they are legitimately commander of the faithful, that uh, they lead the jihad against the, the Byzantines. Um, uh, al is famous for going after Amorian. Um, it's a bit of a bust of his military operation if you look closely at the sources, but much hay is made out of it. But that's also part and parcel of the rhetoric of identity, the assertions of his place. Al-Wathik does the same thing. And then when you look at al-Mutawakil and why he ends the Mehna, you, you come to see that he's not ending caliphal involvement in um, dogma, and he's not ending caliphal involvement in uh, determining articles of faith and practice. He's ending the bureaucratic infrastructure that was a holdover from uh, al-Ma'mun, al-Mutasin, and al-Wathik, uh, because he views it as limiting his role and in independence and his authority as legitimately commander of the faithful. He ends the Mehna not because he's uh, reverting to Sunnism or he's implementing the Hanbali way of thinking. He ends the Mehna because he's asserting control over the caliphate, the office, and Samara, and successfully, very successfully initially, he's uh, engaging in normal behavior for the caliph. He continues to do things that are of the same ilk. He is persecuting Shia. He is um, persecuting unbelievers. He's persecuting false prophets. That he is engaging in the same behavior. He's just giving, it's just a different name. It's a different question, but it's the same thing. 
that he's doing for the same reasons. And so when we think about the mehna, we have to say, okay, well, why is it so important? Why is it that it stands out as this um, major aberrant thing? And we come to see when we've gone through the historiographic layering that I was talking about, that we're seeing a competition in the sources by the Hanbalis for their legitimacy as a school of legal thought later that they are arguing with Atabari in particular in the context of Baghdad in the beginning of the 10th century, that they are arguing for their legitimacy as a school of legal thought that is legitimately orthodox and they are competing. Interestingly, uh, Atabari's school of legal thought uh, ends up losing and falls off the map and is no longer uh, a school of legal thought. Uh, his writings, of course, remain, but the evidence and the markers of that competition lay their fingerprints all over the discussion of the Mehna, and that the importance of the Mehna really has to do with the need to assert that Ibn Hanbal is a model worth following, that he is a um, paragon of excellence in belief and practice, that he is legitimately the founder of a school of legal thought, and that uh, the narrative and our perceptions of the Mehna have been shaped by that need, and that the, the Mehna itself is not an aberration, that Al-Ma'mun was not doing anything extraordinarily out of the ordinary. He was more methodical about others uh, and more specifically focused. But Al-Mu'tasim and Al-Wathik didn't just do the mehna on autopilot. They were actively engaged in it. And Al-Mu'tawaka, when he ends the mehna, he's not ending the caliph's role in defining or participating in the definition of belief and practice. He's just shifting it and changing it. The real break for the caliph, for the commander of the faithful, comes when al-Mutawakil is assassinated in 861. When he's killed, there's this period of almost a revolving door at the center that the caliph, the commander of the faithful, um, rotates in and out so fast that the caliphs are being killed by their guard at the, at the capital in Samara, they are losing all sense of legitimacy as being uh, an authority figure that someone should look to. And the caliph, as commander of the faithful, in essence, exits the stage for a couple decades, essentially. And by the time the caliph starts to come back, you'll find almost 70 years later, that by the time the caliph starts to come back as somewhat of a figure who's stable in his position, that everybody's moved on, that the legal scholars have had to fill the void that once was occupied by the caliph, that the legal scholars, in competing amongst themselves and competing um, uh, as different schools of legal thought and within the schools of legal thought, they will take on the burden of defining law and belief and practice and 
the caliph is no longer capable of doing it because no one thinks the caliph has any legitimacy because the caliph has for a period, an extended period of time, not been performing the exercises that legitimated his role in the first place. He's not been leading the jihad. He's not been going after unbelievers. He has not been taking care of business that caliphs were supposed to do. And he had clearly been a puppet and people we're no longer going to take him seriously in the role of being the head of the, of the faith. And so the ulama step in and fill that role. And it, in doing so, uh, solidifies a realm of diversity amongst believers that wouldn't be possible if the caliph had continued in his role. If there had been a figure like a pope, or if the caliph had been Caesar or papist, or it had been in charge uh, the way Innocent III was in charge of the Catholic Church, that had uh, Motuakil continued and his son and successor been as powerful as he, then the religion would look fundamentally different because that space for competition, that space for diversity amongst the schools would have been elided or at least made much more problematic. So I think then you would say because during that initial time period after the assassination that because the caliph was unable to fulfill those roles that, um, you know, conducting trials uh, and things like similar to the Mithna for so many, you know, years prior, that that is what led to the delegitimacy of their role. But was it also connected to the fact that it was so a position that was so tenuous and changed so frequently as well. Well, it's, are they coupled? They're, they're coupled. And, um, the, the lack of a routinized pattern for succession of, you know, charismatic authority where you would have, um, sort of the, the caliph and you know exactly who the next caliph is, and there's not going to be a competition over that and that the legitimacy and authority would be transmitted and the charismatic authority would be vested in that person via the position that 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 doesn't happen, that every single caliph has to assert their role, their social role, and they have to perform the functions and be seen performing the functions and uh, actively engaged in that for them to possess the role that, when they stop doing that, the legitimacy of that person's possessing that the mantle of, of the Prophet, the succession uh, to Muhammad, the, the ability to lead the community, that dissipates. Uh, it's somewhat ephemeral in the sense that without the performance of these duties, without the public performance of this sort of theater of power, theater of authority, without that performance, there is no authority and there is no legitimacy and no power behind that, that if they're not doing the, the annual campaigns against um, the Byzantines, if they're not performing the Hajj, you look at Harun al-Rashid and he is alternating years more or less where he's going campaigning against the Byzantines one year, he's leading the Hajj the next, he's back and forth, he is publicly performing his role as commander of the faithful that he is asserting very visibly his legitimacy. And Ma'amun will do his performance differently, but you'll see him. The beginning of the Mithna is tied directly, directly to 
campaigning against the Byzantines. He is leading the campaign against the Byzantines when he sends the letters uh, beginning in the Mehna. That those two are absolutely intricately tied together. Uh, Mu'tasim is doing something very similar. So is Al-Wafiq. And Al-Mutawaka will do something similar as well. And then, poof, no one can fulfill that role. And by the time there is somebody who can, who is in a position to have enough independence and authority on their own to try, no one's going to take it seriously and nobody does. And then that vacuum becomes filled. Right. The the vacuum is taken on more locally. That without the center, the Baghdad or Samara, without that as a model, uh, there's a local devolution of um, interpretation. There had always been there, but now it raises an importance because you stop looking to the center to see what's happening in Baghdad or Samara. You look more close to home because, well, nothing's really happening in Baghdad or Samara that's worth note. So you look to your local uh, major city, you look to Cairo, you look to Cairo One, you look to Cordoba, you look to the various you know, locales, you, you look more locally and you stop looking at the center. Uh, you stop looking at Baghdad and, and Samar because they no longer represent uh, that leader, that leading light in the faith, that there's no longer anyone in charge. That extreme, uh, extremely fascinating. I mean, you know, really taking a whole new look at what's going on at play um, and realizing that this is, you know, has so many effects on religious and, you know, political authority. It's just this is really amazing work that you've done here. Thank you. Um, we've taken a lot of your time. Um, if you wouldn't mind, though, uh, perhaps you could uh, share with us maybe some upcoming projects you might be working on. Uh, right now, I'm working on um, a, a short project, uh, an article I'm writing right now on um, identity and, as it's described in writers like Al-Jahid. So the same time period and, and dealing with similar issues, but um, how people are described, how people are describing themselves, and how those identities are different from what we uh, have perceived and the problem of vocabulary difference that what we read is not necessarily what they mean and that we have to tease out what they're really saying and Al-Jahiz because he's so prolific is a great place to to engage a lot of those issues because there's a, such a massive material that we have and uh, he's really a lot of, he's difficult but he's a lot of fun to read um, the other project that I'm working on is continuing uh, to engage this idea of boundary drawing uh, about um, who's included and who's excluded and I'm focusing on um, the Zindik, uh, the the free thinkers who were tried at the beginning of the Abbasid era and how their identity is construed and described and any potential similarities with other groups elsewhere. Um, and that uh, I'm very interested in understanding why communities evolve the way they do and the mechanisms by which they uh, construct themselves, whether consciously or unconsciously. And this group makes an appearance in your second chapter, I, yes. I believe, correct? Yes, they yep. do. Um, and I, I actually had um, 
when I initially was writing that, I thought I wanted to spend a lot more time on that, and uh, I didn't get to. And so this is me taking that thread and getting to spend the time that I really want to on them. Well, hopefully, if it turns into something, you know, very full and can become a work unto its own, this could be the next topic for us sometime in the future. Well, that would be fantastic. I would look forward to that. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my book. Oh, it was wonderful. The pleasure was all mine. You have a good evening, okay? You as well. Thank you.